Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, explore its story and themes, and judge the actions of the characters at the Saga Thing. And welcome back for the almost completely uncalled for second <laughs> part of our discussion of Rekdala Saga Okvigaskitu, oh, the saga of Rekdal and of Killer Skuta. Come on now, almost completely uncalled for? Is that how we're <laughs> going to kick this one off? Well, I mean, okay, let's try to keep this judgment free, but let's be honest. When we started this podcast, did you ever think we'd one day be recording multiple episodes on Rekdala Saga? I'm going to be completely honest with you and say that I didn't think about this saga at all. That is my point exactly. Mm-hmm. But now that we're here in the middle of the action, I say we go for it. Let's let's do this. Well, it undeniably did make sense to break this discussion in half. I mean, there's mm-hmm. already a nearly complete change of cast for the second part. We're going to have to get familiar with a whole new group of Icelanders here. And many of them are then going to die. Yes. So, uh, before we get too deeply into all those deaths, uh, let's, uh, let's do a brief recap of part one, shall we? I suppose we should. So the essence of the first part of this saga is the slow burning tension in the northern region of Mivatan between the family of Steingrim Ornolfsson and the nephews of Oskel the Gothi. In particular, most of the conflicts were started by Oskel's nephew, Vaymund Fringe. Ah, yes. Vaymund of the Thousand Terrible Plans. That's the guy. Vaymund the Ox Thief. Yes. Vaymund the Bride Kidnapping Wedding Crasher. Uh-huh. <laughs> Vaymund the Sometime Friend of Thorgeir Butterring. Yes, 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 yes. Vaymund Obviously, the- Old Butterring is important, but this is supposed to be the story of Askel the Gothi. Sure it is. That's what the uh, critics would have you believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, e- even though the various feuds and their resolutions are centered on Oskel's efforts to keep the peace, I think we both saw him as undeniably noble, but ultimately a pretty ineffective force in the end. Ineffective, yes. Although I do think that turned out to be more of a reflection on, I think, the limitations of the law to create and enforce peaceful settlements. I don't really think it's meant to be a condemnation of Askel in particular. Yeah, that's fair, I think. Um, Oskel's able to bring about settlements for nearly all the trouble his nephews cause, but, I mean, ultimately, there's only so much you can do to stop a group of unrepentant troublemakers like Vaymond and his brother. So, there were a bunch of arguments, a number of incompetent plans that got quite a few men killed, actually, and finally, a disastrous failed attack by Steingrim Arnolfsson and his men that resulted in Steingrim and several of his followers falling into a frozen river while Vaymond and his crew threw spears at them. Yeah, and uh, Steingrim dies in that disaster. Yep. So so Vaymond's greatest victory came because some thin ice broke under his enemy's feet. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a shame that Vaymond dies of an illness shortly after and then doesn't really enjoy this lame victory for very long. <laughs> well, but in addition, both sides do suffer a loss on the day of the fight. One of Steingrim's followers, Thorir Kettleson, slid across the ice and managed to fatally wound poor old Askel the Gothi. Askel manages to arrange a general, generous settlement for his own death before dying. And even on his deathbed, Askel is still trying to maintain peace in the region. Oh, Askel. <laughs> but, you know, as we're going to see this time out, he's also still failing to maintain that peace, mm. as usual. Askel's younger son, Skuta, is out of Iceland when the settlement for Askel's death is agreed upon. And that's an important detail. It is, because it means that he hasn't agreed not to seek revenge for his father's death. And as we rejoin the saga, Scooter's about to earn his nickname, Killer Scooter. 
And since most of the major figures from last time died halfway through the saga, mm. we have a mostly new cast of characters to get to know. Although they'll be connected to the first half through the sides that they were on when Oskel died, at least at first anyway. Right, more or less. Uh, so last time we had the story of a man who tries almost alone against the world to maintain a fragile peace. And this time we have the story of a man who comes charging into the last fragile piece his father made and smashes it all to pieces. Yeah. Yeah, that pretty much covers it. Well done. And as was the case last time, there's a limit to how much scholarly history we can bring to bear on all this, since not a lot of people have spent their time exploring or explaining Rekdala Saga. Well, we said last time that Rekdala Saga isn't exactly a critical darling. Yeah, decidedly not. Uh, put it this way. If anyone out there is really looking for a chance to write some original scholarship, this is the text to write about. Rekdala Saga is the scholarly equivalent of New Fallen Snow. Oh, that's both lovely and accurate. Well done, John. <laughs> well, it's true. Anything you do is bound to make an impression. Exactly. Well, let's dig in. All right. Part one. Big trouble in Little Mivotten. <laughs> so we are picking up the action of the saga a year after the deaths of Oskil Legothi, Steingrim Ornolfsson, and Vaemund Fringe. Mm -hmm. Which means that we're a little depleted character-wise, and the saga <laughs> wastes no time in introducing a bunch of new figures for us. Yeah, I mean, this really feels like hitting the reset button. And we're introduced to four new families right away, and a total of 15 new people. Oh, it's a cakewalk compared to last time. See, you're being sarcastic, I can tell. But we'll keep know. it simple for everyone. So the patriarchs of the four families are an unpopular troublemaker named Thorberg Cheekstruck, a well-respected lawyer and warrior named Arnor Thorgrimson, a powerful farmer named Giri of Girastather, and Giri's neighbor, Hall of Sandfell. Yeah, that's not too bad. And mm -hmm. hearing you list those out, it having read the saga now, I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, now I see how all, the, <laughs> all those episodes link together. I should have known. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, uh, I should add, Hall of Sandfell has a daughter named Thorkatla, and mm -hmm. the other three all have multiple sons who are going to have roles to play in what comes next. Right. And meanwhile, there have been some political changes in the region. Remember, Oskol was the local Gothi, or chieftain, so his death created a power vacuum in Mivat. Right. And the next generation isn't helping. Oskol's son Thorstein has taken over the family farm, but in a somewhat surprising move, he sells off the chieftaincy that his father held. Right. Now, selling a chieftaincy isn't unheard of, but it's definitely unusual. Mm. And it's even stranger when you consider that Thorstein's only a co-owner of the chieftaincy. His partner is his brother, Skuta, who we haven't seen yet in the saga. No, but his time's coming. Just wait. Skuta mm. returns to Iceland the summer following the settlement for his father's death. And he remains with his brother for six months, but he's kind of sullen and withdrawn the entire time. Yeah, he really doesn't make any secret of his dissatisfaction with the settlement. No. Well, remember that it was Askel's dying wish that the uh, the settlement be peaceful, but, but peaceful solutions to problems aren't really Skuta's cup of mead. <laughs> no. Uh, now, it can be difficult to keep all the parties happy in a lawsuit at the best of times. And as the scholar Vestin Olison points out, this is hardly the best of times. Yeah. Olison notes that Skuta, who is an undeniable stakeholder in the outcome of the suit over his father's death, can destroy the entire agreement simply by refusing to be a party to it, or even just by ignoring it. Well, I, that makes sense. There's a cost to breaking an agreement, but that cost is mostly to your relationships with those who negotiated the deal, and maybe a bit to your reputation. Mm -hmm. Skuta isn't beholden to anyone involved in the settlement negotiation, except his father and brother. And his father's dead, so... 
Well, and as we're going to see in this episode, Scoot is not all that concerned with his public image either. Yeah, and that makes him kind of dangerous. I mean, mm-hmm. the, restri- the restrictions that Honor places on most Icelanders doesn't always seem to work on Scooter. Kind of like Gret here. <laughs> he, he's <laughs> yes. more single-minded than a lot of other saga figures. And right now, he's planning to get to work. Yes, he is. Uh, so in the spring, the brothers reach a solution. Thorsten will keep the family farm, but Scooter takes the movable wealth and buys a new farm. He also, significantly, takes with him his brother's permission to seek blood vengeance for their father's death. Which is kind of odd, at least in the sagas, to have that kind of thing go down. Uh, mm-hmm. It strikes me as being a little bit more than disingenuous on uh, Thorstein Askelson's part. He said that he would uphold his father's desire for peace, and here well, he is kind of disrupting Does that. he, though? I think Thorstein phrased his agreement very carefully. Mm-hmm. If you recall, he said, I will not find a better course of action for myself than that I should imitate what he did, mm-hmm. and I will not block this settlement. Yeah, and that's very well done. It's it's intentionally ambiguous, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think so. It absolutely is. Uh, he knows he's got a brother who's likely to come back wanting blood for their father's death, and his wording of the settlement agreement at least leaves the door open for Scooter to get a bit revengey on his return. Yeah, that's right. But uh, that that's still going against his father's wishes. His father's all about peace, and he's well, opening the door for some hostilities. What but either do? way, the settlement is on thin ice now. So uh, while Scooter's, you, it's cute. Uh, you like it. Yeah. So while Skuta's picking out benches for his new farm, a Norwegian ship makes harbor at Husavik. Three brothers own the ship, one named Vagen Spear, Nafar Shortsword, and Skefield Sword. Nicknames! <laughs> I mean, not terribly original ones, but nicknames! Oh, there's so many cool nicknames in this one. I think uh, we're going to need a whole episode just to cover nicknames. Well, um, I always want one. Now, John, can you, uh, can you guess what weapon Skefield Sword is famous for using? Uh, I'm going to say nunchucks. That is, that's very wrong. <laughs> now, all three brothers have excellent weapons for which they are named, and Skeffield's sword is, in particular, impressive and beautiful. Now, these three brothers are supposed to stay with Geary's son, Glum, but Thorberg Cheekstruck rides out to meet them, tells them that Glum's far too poor to host them for the winter, and brings <laughs> them back to his place. Which is not true. No, no. And when he hears about it, Gloom is not thrilled that uh, Thorberg's been spreading lies about him. But the damage is done, and the Norwegians end up staying with Cheekstruck for the winter. Yeah, and the Norwegians aren't thrilled about that whole setup either. Mm-hmm. But they, they did make a deal with Thorberg, and as merchants, they have to be careful about keeping their word if they want people to deal with them. So, they're stuck. Right. But for some reason, Thorberg decides to keep messing with Gloom. And I don't understand why. I mean, this yeah. whole sequence, I know it's a, a kind of a repetition of what we saw in the beginning of the saga, um, but I don't get it. He's already got the Norwegians, and presumably that means he's got first crack at their cargo, so why not just leave it alone? Why keep pressing? He's not a gracious winner. What can I say? <laughs> um, so Thorberg's next prank is a variation of what I'm going to have to start calling the Mivatten Classic. He <laughs> sends one of his workers to hide a horse in Glum stable then shows up in the morning at Gloom's farm to search for it. I do like that Mivaden classic. <laughs> I hope we see it again in the saga just so we can use that. Um, but I don't understand how this whole process keeps working. You know, I hide the thing and then find it. I feel like everyone in the region has to be up to speed on the whole missing livestock gag by now. Well, you'd think so, yeah. <laughs> Especially since Thorberg goes right to the farm of his enemy in complete confidence of finding his missing horse. Well, in fact, everyone in the region is pretty sure Thorberg's full of horse manure. <laughs> Since he's well-known as a troublemaker and, as the saga says, not popular among most people. 
Sure, but you know, with no evidence of foul play, no one's sure how to stop Thorberg from pressing a legal case against Gloom. It's similar to what happened before. Right. Well, that, but also Thorberg's got very powerful support. Oh, I knew you were going to bring this up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, uh, yeah. I'm just reporting just, the facts. You just can't <laughs> help it, can you? I, I'm reporting the facts. And the fact is that Thorberg's partner in crime is none other than your newest thingman, Thorgir the Gothi. Mm-hmm. Now, Andy, I have to ask, when you chose Thorgir in the last saga, did you know that he was the sort of man to shamelessly support spurious lawsuits brought by spiteful men against their good neighbors? Well, first of all, I chose him in the last saga, so his reputation there is what we're going by. Oh. But I think we both know that this saga can't be trusted. So, I mean, if the author wants to cast aspersions on Thorgir the Wise, then I'll have to trust that Thorgir the Wise. I'm going to trust the audience simply knows better. Now, I I don't think that you're going to find Thorgir cast in such a negative light elsewhere. (laughs) But that said, I'm disappointed in how often Thorgir seems to get attached to these ridiculous plots in this saga. But my guess is that he's just a convenient, noteworthy name for the region, and the author's just kind of grasping. (laughs) A likely story. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Thorgir, his best friend Thorberg, (laughs) Thorberg's two sons, Thorsten and Olvir... And the three Norwegians lead a group of 18 men to Gloom's farm in the spring to summons him for the theft of the horse. Now, normally I would say that this is probably not going to end well for the Norwegian companions, but (laughs) there are three of them. And I'm not sure the Norwegian companion rule applies when there's three. Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, And we do get to see how it works out right away because Gloom and his father Geary have no intention of putting up with this summonsing nonsense. When they hear Thorberg's party outside, they scramble for their weapons, send servants to ride for help, and charge out the door with eight men. So ten against eighteen. That's not great odds for old Gloom. No, but they're not going to waste any time in evening things up. Gloom and Geary team up to kill Thorberg's son Thorsten right away. Oh. But, as you say, Thorberg's gang has a numbers advantage. Or at least they do, until Gloom's neighbor Hall of Sandfell runs into the fray with nine more men to support Gloom. Now we've got a good old-fashioned brawl going on, don't we? We do. And there are injuries and deaths on both sides. And while all 40 or so men are hacking away at each other, more men start riding up and joining in. Right. But one of those groups doesn't join the fight. Scooter rides up with nine men, but he decides not to get involved. Instead, he tells his men, Well, I don't want to support either side. It will go better for those who are meant to prevail. And if the winner gets exiled, then it will soon be clear who the most powerful man in Mivatan is. So, so Skuta is missing his upper teeth, I'm assuming. What's, what's going on there? <laughs> I don't know. Is that too much? <laughs> uh, well, it's too late now. I guess that's what he sounds I see. like. I see. Oh, dear. Maybe he had a terrible accident. <laughs> that's right. Got his teeth knocked out. Oh, well. Um, can I just take this opportunity to point out that this scene is almost exactly like the scene in Chapter 6 when Roy ambushes Vaymund? You may. Only in that scene, Oskil shows up and attempts to reconcile things. Well, as he is wont to do, yes. Yes, but but that's not Skuta's style, is it? <laughs> no. Uh, and it might be worth debating which of the two approaches is better in this region. Well, I think it is worth debating that, but uh, I think we'll save it for judgments. Because uh, right. it's an interesting conversation we could have. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so right. by the time the two sides are separated... There have been a total of six men killed. Thorsten Thorbergsen, one of Thorberg's workers, one of Glum's workers, and all three Norwegian brothers. Ooh, so we had a Norwegian companion triple-header, did we? 
Is this a hat trick? Can we it can is. we count this as a hat trick? Yeah, yeah. We ha- we have to. And it's very impressive. And and by my count, that's five men dead on Thorberg's side and only one on Glum's. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of serious wounds, including a nasty leg wound to Glum's father, Geary. But overall, it's a pretty impressive win. And the settlement that's eventually made is just as lopsided. It comes mm-hmm. out that Thorberg framed Gloom for the horse theft, and so Thorgair the Gothi and Gloom's friend Arnor arrange a, a settlement that involves no compensation paid by Gloom, despite the lopsided victory. But Gloom and his father do move away from the region, so that seems to settle things for a time. Right, which is exactly what Scooter predicted would happen. One side was decimated, the other side is sent out of the area, mm-hmm. which means there's a little more room to maneuver in Mivatan now. Ah, yes, but there is a loose end to be tied up. There is? We have those uh, dead Norwegians to deal with. Oh, right. See, I'm actually, I'm not used to sagas that pay attention to Norwegians after they've been killed. Uh, Go ahead. Okay, so in the settlement for the battle, no one claims a right to compensation for the Norwegians. And the three of them are then buried quietly nearby where they fell. Mm -hmm. And each of them with their namesake weapon. So Vaughn had a spear. Mm -hmm. Nafar had a short sword. And Skefil had a sword. That's right. Sometime later, a bully named Thorstein Fishing Pole. Yes. <laughs> Thorstein Fishing Pole. He's going to uh, give old Butterring a run for his money, isn't he? <laughs> Thorstein Fishing Pole asks to marry Hall of Sandfell's daughter, Thorkatla. And when Hall turns him down, Thorstein challenges him to a duel for Thorkatla's hand. And, and somehow the Norwegian weapons are going to come to play in this. Right. Now, it should be said that Hall doesn't just turn Thorstein down. He goes on a little rant about how he'd never marry his daughter to a man as bad as Thorstein. It is known to many that a greater troublemaker than Thorstein can hardly be found. Iceland is populated with really old, grumpy guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, despite the big talk, uh, Hall's definitely an old guy, which is why well, he's giving the voice. That. I get it. I understand. And he's old enough that he doesn't think he stands a chance in a fight with Thorstein. Now, fortunately for him, Gloom's brother Thorkel Garrison is standing quite nearby and is glad for a chance to repay his brother's debt for Hall's support against Thorberg Cheekstruck. And that's a lot of names in one sentence. Yes, it is. <laughs> and so he takes up the duel with Thorstein Fishing Pole. Right. That's an, that's an important point. It's, it's not explicitly stated in the saga that that's what's going on here, but it absolutely is. These kinds of support and these kinds of exchanges of support are how the game of honor is played. It's fortunate for Hall that there's someone to take over for him because Thorstein has a reputation as a duelist. Uh Uh-oh. And this is going to be the classic Holmgang-style duel. Mm. Each man will have a second who will hold his shield and protect him and will use a single weapon. And Thorstein has a friend, Thorstein Bullcalf, who's held his shield in multiple duels before, so they're a good team. Thorstein Fishing Pole and his friend Thorstein Bullcalf. That's right, the Thorsteins. I am so looking forward to the nickname discussion for this saga. You should be. Okay. Uh, well, fortunately, Thorkel has a young friend named Ofig of Skorth to hold his shield. And he has Hall, who's willing to go dig up Skefil, the Norwegian's grave, to retrieve the sword that he was buried with. Right. Now, Thorkel's a little disturbed by the grave robbing, but he does need a reliable sword for this fight. Now, unfortunately, we don't get much in the way of details about the duel itself. Oh, that's an understatement. The entire description of this duel, if I may read it to you, is... Of their exchanges, it is said that Thorkel struck Thorstein his death blow. The end. That's really disappointing. Especially after we spent time building this fight up. Why? We, gotta, well, we have to have more. 
there's a second duel right away, if that helps. Oh, right. The shield holders decide to fight a duel, and there's no explanation of who's holding Thorstein Bullcalf's shield since Fishing Pole is dead now. Mm-hmm. But maybe no one is because he gets killed too. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, there, there's a strange interlude at the end of this section where Thorkel insists that the sword should go back into Skeffel's grave until Skeffel then appears to him in a dream, thanks him for bearing the sword honorably in the duel, and gives it to him to keep. Right. Sure he does. It's so, so weird. That sword becomes known as Skeffel's gift and becomes an heirloom in the family. Uh, and it isn't long, of course, after that happens, it isn't long before people dig up the other two Norwegians to get the spear and the short sword. So all three weapons go back into circulation in Iceland. Now that is some seriously casual grave robbing right there. Yeah, it kind of is. Like, uh, I had a dream. Uh, exactly. <laughs> no, honestly. Uh, <laughs> be that as it may, the loss of so many powerful figures in the area means that it's time for Skuta to start earning his position as the central figure in this half of the saga, anyway. Uh, it's time for... Part 2. Skuta's Revenge. So up to this point, we've seen Skuta ride up to a brawl already in progress, put his hands in his pockets, and heroically do nothing. (laughs) Well, don't forget his winter spent moping at his brother's house before moving to his own farm. Oh, I wouldn't forget that. He's he's really off to a raging start, just like he (laughs) promised. (laughs) But my point is that this is starting to feel like the first half of the saga all over again. Um, I mentioned this earlier. We have a supposedly main figure who generally shows up after the important stuff's happened and then doesn't Mm -hmm. do a whole lot. I know what you mean. That killer Scooter nickname is writing checks that Scooter himself isn't cashing. Yeah, well, fortunately, that's about to change in a very, very big way. Well, as the title of this section suggested. Well, as the title of the second half of the saga suggests, it's called (laughs) the killer Scooter, right? So he's got to do some killing. Right. Um... Yeah, but, you know, the thing we run into with the section title sometimes, I've noticed, is that they, they spoil the surprise sometimes. we got to be more Well, clear. you know. But, you know, Scooter is going to get more active, and so that should sell you on listening to the rest of this. That's and right. <laughs> In case he, you were thinking gonna... about giving this up and going and reading a good book. Yeah, don't go read a good book when you can listen to this right. nonsense. Especially not if you're <laughs> driving. So Scooter starts by tracking down and killing two of the men who were involved in the death of Scooter's father, Oskil Gothi. So there. Great. All right, let's get to it. Give me the details. Yeah, well, you know, that's the problem, because I I just gave you almost all the details we have. Uh, It's so disappointing. (laughs) I mean, we are primed for this revenge narrative. Everything about the saga's direction suggests that we're looking for some serious revenge killing around now. And Scooter just, what, kills these guys off stage? Not exactly, no. Here, the description's short, so I I can just read it to you. It goes like this. It is said that a ship came to Knarareri one summer. I can't say that word, so forgive me. <laughs> Skuta went to the ship, and he killed the first man in avenging his father. The man had been in the expedition with Steingrim when Oskil and Steingrim fought, as if Oskil fought with Steingrim, as was reported earlier in the saga of the people of Rekdal. A little later, Skuta killed another man, who had also been at that encounter. But that's it? I mean, where's the story? How did he kill them? What were the circumstances? Wait, wait, there's one more line. We are not able to report reliably on the circumstances of the deaths of these men, but we know this was Skuta's first revenge for his father. Ooh, touche, saga author, touche. Well, that's disappointing. Hey, you know, at least it's a boost to the body count, so we got that. And besides, cheer up, there's a bigger target for Skuta now. A little guy named Thorir Kettleson. Well, that is a big target. 
Thor yeah. is supposedly the son of Kettle Flatnose, who ruled in the Hebrides in the later 9th century. Mm-hmm. But I'm not interested unless we get some real information about the fight this time. Oh, there are details this time. All right, I'm listening. So it turns out that Thorir is something of a serial killer. Not in the creepy waiting in the bushes outside of your house at night until you go to sleep and then play jacks in the driveway kind, but but more the of what? the... What? Now, don't worry. He's not that kind. That's what I'm saying. Yep, but now I'm worried that you might be. That was very specific. I'm just guessing. But my point was that <laughs> Thorir seems to have the same problem we identified with Eric the Red. He keeps getting thrown out of different places because he's often involved in killings. I mean, shortly after his involvement with Oskil's death, Thor is outlawed from the south quarter of Iceland because of his involvement in the death of Hroar, the Gothi of Tunga. So everywhere I he goes. Mm-hmm. So another Gothi, huh? Yeah. There aren't that many Gothar in Iceland at a time. This guy has expensive tastes. Well, you know, Thor is now in trouble in too many places, and so he comes back and asks Eolf Algerson to sponsor him to overturn the outlawry from the north. Eolf mm. reluctantly agrees to this and has Thor announce himself at each of the regional things to get cleared of his outlawry. People are putting up with this. Yeah, I don't know why. I thought Oskel was universally beloved. And this is the guy who actually struck the killing blow on him. Well, you know, Eolf gets Thorgir the goalie to help and Thorir goes uh, everywhere between Thorgir the two again. of them. So he feels pretty safe. And everything goes well at first, but Skirta gets wind that they're at the Ljosvat assembly. And he asks his brother Thorstein to help him kill Thorir. Ah, that's more like it. You would think so, but not really. <laughs> Thorstein doesn't want to break the settlement that he agreed to, so no killing for Thorstein. Oh, Well, I mean, there's some sense to that. As we hinted earlier, the brothers have agreed that Skuta is not bound by that settlement, but Thorstein is. Right, so Skuta instead tells Thorstein to go with him and meet with Eolf and Thorgir, and to offer to make a deal to forgive Thorir's outlawry. But Skuta arms himself for the meeting, carrying his axe, which he calls Fluga, or Fly. Uh, Now, we should be clear that this means fly as in a buzzing insect, not fly like an eagle. No, uh, although both meanings do exist in Old Norse just as they do in English. Right. So in this case, he calls his axe fly because of its buzzing speed or because of its bite. I'm going to go with both of those things. Well, you know, and it also, it might make reference to those clouds of midges that Skutus Helmut Mivatten is known for. <laughs> hmm. You know, I somehow doubt that, but but don't get me off track. Uh, when the brothers approach Eolf, Thorir, and Thorgir, mm-hmm. everyone else puts out a hand to shake, but Skuta whips out his axe right there and buries it in Thorir. Nice! It's a simple plan, but an effective one. It is, and, and he even managed to get off a quick one-liner before running away. He says, I don't know if I can do this voice that you did. Fly caught flat-nosling, though he was sitting between the two gothies. <laughs> I don't it's have not the, much uh, of a one-liner, really. It's not much of a voice no. either, but not much of a one-liner no. at all. Sorry about that. You know, when I was reading this, I, I you know, I could see that line coming, and I got excited. I thought he was going to say something cool after the killing, but mm-hmm. you know, I was promptly disappointed by Scooter's lack of wit. But uh, you know, snappy dialogue is hard to come by in the saga, so we'll take what we can get. Yeah, it's true. We'll undoubtedly be talking about that as well in the judgment section. So, uh, Skuta does get away, but Thorgir and Eolf are upset about the attack because they made a public matter of supporting Thorir. Not to mention that Skuta's attack is a little embarrassing for them personally. I mean, he's just assassinated Thorir at the thing they jointly preside over, and despite their protection and their physical presence. Sure, and he killed Thorir about a foot away from them, so mm. that's gotta be more than a little upsetting. Right. <laughs> so, essentially, Skuta's got his revenge for his father's death, but he's made himself a couple of powerful new enemies in the process. That's about the size of it. Oh, and, and before we leave this section, can I ask a question that I think that I already know the answer to? 
Uh, okay. Uh, a question mm. you know the answer to. Yeah. It sounds like some sort of philosophy. Is this a Zen thing? No, no. But, you know, I, I just made a note a few minutes ago when you said that Thorir Kettleson is supposedly the son of Ketel Flatno. So, you oh, know, that. Yeah. Why don't you explain what you were getting at there? Um, okay, sure. Uh, it's pretty straightforward, really. I can't find any evidence of Kettle Flatnose having a son named Thorir anywhere else. Yes, exactly. Now, we read a genealogy of Kettle Flatnose way back in Erbidja saga. Right, I checked it. Uh, mm-hmm. Erbidja lists Kettle as having two sons, Bjorn the Easterner and Helgi yes. Bjolan. He also has three daughters, Al the Deep-Minded, Joran Wisdombrow, and Thorin the Horned. Uh, that same list is given in Lakshdala Saga. Landama book, the Book of Settlements, lists only four children and actually skips Thorun. Yeah, and a handful of other sagas mention Kettle's children, but it's always the same names. No one ever mentions a son named Thorir, son of Kettle Flatnose. Except this this author here. Yep. So, unless Kettle had an illegitimate son recorded nowhere else, which I have to admit is a possibility, although it's a remote mm-hmm. one, but unless that's the case, we've got us an imposter. And I think it comes down to another example of this author being just a little bit unsteady in what he's doing. And that alone should help exonerate old Thorgir the Gothi from the spurious claims of this author. Oh, I'm not buying that. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, we're, we're more than likely dealing with a bit of authorial invention here, aren't we? Right, and I agree. Uh, but I'm starting to suspect that this author really is relying on those local oral traditions we talked about in the last episode. It'd be great to think that there was an oral preservation of some Oskal-killing jerk running around Mivatan claiming to be Kettle Flatnose's son. <laughs> but, uh, you know, probably the author's just wrong about this like he is on Thorgir. Yeah, probably. But don't ruin my fun. Okay, moving along. Part 3. The Horrors at Robin's Rock. The Horrors. Horrors. Now, you see, there is a title that doesn't spoil anything. So, now that Scoot has killed Thor Kettleson, if that is his real name, he's got to deal with the consequences. And those consequences are going to be pretty substantial. Scoot uh, committed a killing of a man under the protection of two chieftains right in front of them at the regional thing. It's it's one of the more ballsy moves we've seen in the sagas. It really is. And there's a price to pay for that sort of thing. Uh, Thorgir, in particular, holds a grudge over Thor's death. So he does what one does under these circumstances in the sagas. Mm-hmm. He hires a passing outlaw to make an attempt on Scooter's life. Oh, that old chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> there are going to be, as there always are in these sagas, a couple of these little assassination attempts in a row. Right, but saying that now kind of gives away that the first one doesn't work. Oops. Uh, yeah, but I think our audience knows by now that the odds of a transient hired killer successfully killing anyone in these sagas is incredibly low. Well, sure enough. Uh, mm-hmm. So Thorgir has teamed up with another of Skuta's enemies, old Thorberg Cheekstruck. Pow. The two of them send an outlaw named Grimm to seek lodging with Skuta. Skuta takes Grimm in for the winter, and it's only in the spring that Grimm decides to make the attempt on Skuta's life. Well, Grimm's no fool, kind of. <laughs> That's a winter's <laughs> worth of food and shelter, so that, it's nothing to sneeze at for an outlaw. It's a good, good deal. True. Uh, well, the assassination goes nowhere. Uh, one day by the shore of Mivaden, Grimm attacks Skuta with an axe when Skuta bends over to tie a shoelace. But Skuta's got a mail coat on under his cloak, and the axe bounces off. Ah, the old mithril shirt under the old clothes gag. Hey, it's good enough for Frodo. Yep. 
and Scooter's able to overpower Grimm pretty easily after that, and gets the whole story of Thorgir and Thor- Thorberg's plot out of him. And then he kills him, obviously. Well, no. no. Uh, at least not right away. That's right. It turns out that Scooter's got a serious dark side when it comes to payback. Yeah. Um, we haven't seen anything like this in the sagas before. Uh, nope. Scooter rows Grimm out to a skerry on Mivatan called Hraven's Rock, strips him naked, and ties him to a stake. And before he leaves, he tells Grimm, And you'll be out here for some time unless Thorgir saves you. I I doubt anyone understood that. <laughs> I, I'll interpret for uh, old <laughs> Scooter. Uh, you got to put your dentures back in, Scooty. Um, he said, you'll be here for some time unless Thorgir saves you. Oh, come on. You. Are you seriously going to do this? <laughs> uh, but, you know, how is Thorgir supposed to find him? Ah, that's the diabolical genius of Scooter's plan. He mm. actually sends word to Thorgir that Grimm's out on Hraven's Rock and in need of help. Which means that Scooter's no longer responsible if Grimm dies. Oh, true, actually. But it's mm-hmm. mainly because it's a trap, and Thorgir knows it. Scooter's yeah. already on to him, and if Thorgir shows up to rescue a failed assassin, Scooter will have damning proof of Thorgir's involvement. But Thorgir's not that easy to fool. No. He stays home, and so does Thorberg Cheekstruck, for that matter. And mm-hmm. so, the saga author says, Grimm died out there on the island and was tormented most by hunger and midge bites because he was without clothes. Oh, he's eaten alive by insects. Wow, it's terrible. Well, eaten alive is going a little far. He's stung and bitten and starved and dehydrated to death. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, it would feel like you're being eaten alive. And second sure. of all, how is that better? Oh, it's not. It's it's awful. <laughs> Were yeah. we trying to make it better? I, I apparently not. No. But the question is how Thorgir and Thorbrick are going to take having their assassin fed to the flies. Well, as you might expect, they're angry about it. Uh, and they've course. got a backup plan. They do the exact same thing again. Yay. But this time they send two men to stay with Scooter. Well, then it's not exactly the same. <laughs> this time the two assassins, who are outlaws named Olaf and Thorgout, are pretending to be Norwegian merchants and relations of the three dead Norwegians from earlier. True. Actually, by the standards of the saga, this isn't a bad plan at all. Mm-hmm. And it does fool Skuta. Uh, Olaf and Thorgout stay with Skuta for a time, and he treats them very well. Uh, then one day, a clothesline beam falls down, and as Skuta is lifting it back into place, the assassins attack. Yeah, and this isn't really a bad plan, is it? No, uh, only Skuta's reflexes save him. He's able to leap away while the beam crashes down between them. But it's two armed men against one, and Scooter left his axe in the house. So when Thorgout strikes at him with his axe, Scooter grabs a washing cudgel in desperation and bats the axe out of Thorgout's hands. And somehow, almost as if this was an action movie, the axe then lands <laughs> right by Scooter. He grabs it and immediately kills Olaf with it. But mm-hmm. he's got a worse fate in mind for old Thorgout. So it's back out to Hraven's Rock. Once again, yes. Uh, and again, no one comes to help. So like Grimm, Thorgout dies out there on the rock. Yeah. It, it's a it's a grim death, isn't it? <clears throat> a grim death. <clears throat> Get it? Um, now, did, did anyone ever clear Grimm's corpse away? Nope. Uh, it's yeah. not clear how much time passes between these incidents, but it's been at least a year, because in both cases, the outlaws come at the beginning of winter. So when Thorgout is staked out on the rock... He's presumably got Grimm's long-dead remains to stare at while he slowly dies of frostbite and exposure. Wow. That'll send a message. 
<laughs> you know, I thought I was going to enjoy Scooter, but uh, he's getting a little bit dark here. Well, he's definitely getting a reputation as a man no one wants to mess with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's not the only man with a reputation in the region, as we'll shortly see. But first, there's another bit of trouble brewing in the area. Another one, you say? Yeah. Uh, Scooter's got a cousin named Eolf Thormudsen. Uh, this is the son of oh, Scooter's yeah. aunt Thorbjorg. Eolf has a horse competing in a horse fight, and during the fight, he accidentally hits the other horse's owner with a staff. Now, this is the sort of minor incident that can snowball very, very quickly. The mm-hmm. other owner is a man named Bjarni Thorstensen, the nephew of Killer Gloom of Thera. That's right. And that's not good. No. We mentioned Killer Gloom in our last episode, and he's got his own saga. It's called Viga Gloom Saga, or the Saga of Killer Gloom. And mm-hmm. that one relates a lot of the same events as Rektala Saga. So this is an important moment in that it marks the beginning of the parallel narratives in both of these sagas. Right. But at first, this doesn't seem like such a big deal. No. Eolf quickly apologizes and offers a rather handsome gift of 60 sheep to Bjarni, who in turn graciously says that he was nearly as much at fault as Eolf. I couldn't believe that. And the that. two of them part as friends. Yeah, that was, it was so surprising when that happened. I thought, mm-hmm. this is a peaceful resolution. I'm shocked. Um, but, you know, it's rarely that simple, and in this case, it's not. Right. Uh, in this case, the problem is that Ail's father, Thormod, wasn't consulted about that informal settlement, and they're his sheep. Mm-hmm. So there are going to be problems at the sheep sorting in the fall. Yeah, and we probably need to explain about the sheep sorting a little bit here. Well, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, farmers in Iceland, like sheep farmers in a lot of other places, used common pastures for their sheep during the warmer months. Then in the autumn... The local farmers gathered to sort out whose sheep belonged to whom before driving them into their winter enclosures. Okay, and and like the weddings we saw in the last episode, this was another moment when neighbors came together. And so sortings are places where food and drink might be shared, debts may mm-hmm. be paid, deals were struck, and so on. And in this case, it's the logical time for Eolf to give the 60 sheep to Bjarni. Sure, but like I said, Thormod wasn't consulted about the deal, and he doesn't like it. So he says to his son... I think that blow must have been great, and moreover, it is greatly compensated for. Which, for some reason, gets Bjarni really angry. Like, like <laughs> so angry that he leaps forward and kills Thormod with a single blow. Yeah, that got serious in a hurry. I mean, I sort of see why. Bjarni thinks Thormod's statement means that Bjarni made a big deal out of nothing, or or else that Bjarni will be perceived as having failed to respond to a blow. I mean, neither mm. of the options is terribly appealing to Bjarni, I guess. Well, but killing Thormod is still a major step forward. Oh, it's a big step. <laughs> Among other things, Thormod is Skutha's uncle-in-law. Mm-hmm. And although Eolf doesn't have enough men with him at the sheep sorting to attack Bjarni on the spot, both men run to their powerful relatives to ask for help. So now Skuta and Killer Gloom are on opposite sides of the case. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but this particular case isn't going to be the one that gets them into court. Gloom advises Bjarni to stay with him for the winter, which he doesn't do. While Skuta three times advises Eolf to have patience with the case. Which is usually good advice. The legal mm-hmm. system's complicated, and moving slowly and deliberately is generally the best path to winning a case. Well, sure. Unless you're Eolf, who... Let's just say he's not that patient. Nope. Uh, so he travels to Bjarni's farm, catches him by surprise, and kills him with two blows. Well, that resolves that now, doesn't it? And it's not so surprising. I mean, avenging your father's death is a serious duty in the sagas, and he wastes no time. Absolutely. Uh, remember, we've even seen people blood-eagling their father's killer before. True. Now, now, obviously, this is going to be a big deal in the region, and Skuta's going to have to deal with the consequences of this killing. 
But for now, he's delighted to discover that Bjarni is a man of action. Ah, he's a man after Scooter's killer's heart. I guess so. But that means <laughs> Eolf is now caught between two men named Killer Scooter and Killer Gloom. And that mm. is not a comfortable place to be, John. No, it's certainly not. Let's see how it works out for him. Part 4. Killer Scooter. Killer versus Killer Gloom. Killer! So, the entire region is in an uproar over the deaths of Thormod and Bjarni, and everyone is choosing sides, and they're doing it fast. Well, when you've got two men with Gloom and Scooter's reputations involved, there's no time for quiet reflection. These are men of action. Yes, and Gloom's ready to move first, but it doesn't work out the way that he hopes it will. Gloom puts together nine men for a scouting party, but Skuta finds out about that from a friend of his named Havart of Isolfstunga. Next time, Gloom tries moving a larger company of men by night, but another of Skuta's friends has a dog named Floki that barks at them and reveals their presence. Mm. So Gloom turns his troop around and heads home, so it's just not working out. Right, but once Gloom calls off the attack... Scooter and his men head out, hoping to cut them off. Both sides send for more aid, and by the time they meet on opposite sides of a river, oh boy. each man has nearly 200 men supporting him. We, we should be clear that these are astronomical figures for a regional dispute, especially in well, the north. Yes. Uh, it's important to recall what Vestin Olison said. This saga is a classic example of how small incidents are seen to snowball. Mm. Even as the usual legal channels are followed and compensation for a slight is being sought... Both contending parties, Olison says, have more often than not gathered round themselves a band of supporters, chieftains, and other prominent men, and each of those men then has honor at stake in the resolution of the difficulty. Which means that every one of the 400 men at this river has a potential <laughs> stake in the outcome, regardless of how loosely they're connected to the action at this point. Right, which is why it's so odd that the numbers involved in something like this would get to be anywhere near this size. Well, that and the simple fact of the population levels. I mean, mm. bringing together 400 fighting men to this area would require pulling in support from pretty far afield. No, that's quite right. Uh, this author has been throwing around big numbers all the way through the saga, but I think mm -hmm. we're definitely straining the limits of credulity at this point. Oh, yeah, it's just now that we're straining the limits. <laughs> but, you know, we have seen these kind of numbers before, but not terribly often. You remember that Henthor, damn it be his name, had hundreds <laughs> of men running around and getting into brawls. True. Uh, at least this author seems aware of the potential disaster that so large a fight could wreak on the community. Mm -hmm. Both sides kind of freeze in place. They're not sure of what to do. They don't want to fight. They don't want to run away. And neither side dares to cross the water first. Yeah, no wonder. I mean, remember what happened to Steingrim and his friends last time? <laughs> right. No, exactly. Uh, but what Scooter doesn't know is that Gloom's son, Mar, has been sent on a special mission to summons Eolf Thormudson for the death of Bjarni intrigue oh. you know i think it's pretty clear well, first of all let me just say you've got 400 men 200 on each side <laughs> or so and they're staring at each other and we're going to shift the focus away from that to yeah talk about. i know i know <laughs> you know uh, i mean like this author has his limitations come on oh <laughs> uh, well anyway it's pretty clear that mars being sent to summons eolf or to kill him whichever he can get away with well he certainly acts that way uh, when he knocks on the door it's eolf's friend Havard who answers and Mar immediately runs him through with a spear without hesitation, yells out a summons to Eolf, and then heads back to the river. Presumably riding as fast as his horse will carry him. Well, you usually don't hang around a place after a thing like that. No. But when Mar reports back to his father, 
Gloom and Eolf Valgerdesen are pleased by the news and shout out a mocking announcement to Skuta that Harvard won't be bearing you any more reports of our movements. It's <laughs> not a bad line. But, uh, you know, they're a little too confident in the width of the river. When he hears of Harvard's death, Skuta shoots a spear across the ford of the river with a throwing string, and it kills a farmer and friend of Gloom's named Throned. And that's a classic move. Yeah. Pick out your man in a crowd, take him out with a single shot. Oh, uh, except Scutus not being remotely precise. I mean, he basically just shoots his spear into the crowd. It's, you know, <laughs> well, that's less classic. <laughs> Still makes his point, though. Well, I guess if his point is, I'll kill you, or you, or maybe you. Well, I'm kill a scooter. I don't care who dies. <laughs> that hurt my throat. I don't know how to respond to that voice, so I'll just move on. That was my best impression of, of what you were doing. I just made him angrier. So the two sides are stuck for a bit until level heads on both sides make an offer to negotiate a settlement. Uh, the eventual deal is that Scutus' cousin Eolf receives a sentence of minor outlawry and Gloom has to allow Scuta to marry his daughter Thorlog. I, that, that part is just insane to me. Uh, it, it it's, it's a terrible like idea. It's a terrible idea. Yeah, so, so Killer Scuta is now going to be Killer Gloom's son-in-law, the guy who's just fighting. I know, I know. It's a little peace-weaving, I guess. Well, but it solves the immediate problem, and as a bonus, sets up a wacky sitcom premise. <laughs> you know, I would definitely watch that show. <laughs> I, yeah, so would I. <laughs> I wouldn't be proud of myself, but I would. I would watch that. The Killers, starring Scuta and <laughs> <laughs> The Odd Killers. <laughs> Well, the author sort of hints that this isn't going to go very well. The first thing we're told after their marriage is that Thorlog had three husbands, not all at the same time, and Skuta was the first. Yeah, see, that's ominous. Yeah, well, even if it's not going to last long, this new arrangement does create some surreal stuff. A while after the wedding, Skuta has another problem to deal with. Another one. Thorir. Yeah. Thorir, the so-called son of Ketoflatnos, left a son behind when he died, and, and that son, Thorgir, wants to avenge his father. Well, it's a noble and worthy pastime for a young man. But, it, you know, it turns out that Thorgir isn't so much a warrior type as kind of a nasty sneak. Mm. Kind of like a, a Vaemund fringe in the first part of the saga. Hmm. He, he's got an, a plan that sounds like one of Vaemunds. He and his co-conspirator, Thorod Gothi, use Skuta's booth at the thing as a as a latrine for weeks <laughs> in high summer to kind of... Oh, it's high summer. Oh, yeah. It's like a grosser sequel to Veyman filling Steingrim's booth with cow crap. That's exactly right. And and not, to make matters worse, Thorgir also raises a scorn pole against Skuta. Now, we've mentioned scorn poles before. Uh, they were often constructed with a severed horse's head, but other kinds are sometimes mentioned as well. And you might remember in Gisli's saga, we saw a scorn pole that was an entire bas-relief carving of two men engaged in a sexual act. Oh, yes. No matter what they were made to look like, the point was always to curse or shame the target. Yeah, well, by comparison to the Gisli poll, this one is pretty tame. But it still <laughs> makes the point. Thorgir is calling Skuta out. You'd think someone would have figured out by now that it's just not that smart to antagonize Skuta. Well, there are some slow learners in this saga, to be fair. There are some slow learners in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Skuta decides to deal with this as simply as possible. He, he goes to the thing dressed as a wood seller to get close to Thorgir. And as soon as he's near enough, he drops his wood and he buries his axe in Thorgir's head. Thunk. And then he runs away from the thing. It's a lot of yeah. running. Well, it is a bit of an anticlimax, though. A, a guy just got an axe in the head. How is that an anticlimax? <laughs> 
But but this is where the fun part comes. Gloom has to deal with the situation since Scoot is his son-in-law now. Right. And so Gloom ends up paying the compensation for Thorgir's death, which is <laughs> pretty <great>. cool. <laughs> Poor Gloom has to feel like he's in hell now. Oh, On top of Scooter being married to his daughter, he has to spend his own money to cover Scooter's killings. Mm-hmm. And sadly, for those of us who like the idea of Scooter and Gloom's sitcom, uh, it's not <laughs> going to last very long. A, a little bit later, Gloom invites his daughter to a feast at his at his house, and well. That's not that unusual. A little one-on-one time with a beloved child. No, no. He he tells her, hey, bring bring all your valuables with you. Come come home. Well, I mean, there are a lot of thieves around. You know, you can't be too careful. Yeah, and and when she gets to Gloom's house, there's a wedding ceremony set up, and a Norwegian man dressed in his wedding finery <laughs> waiting expectantly for her. Well, that is awkward. <laughs> Yeah, it is. You know, it's also a huge blow to Scooter's reputation. I mean, his wife marries this Norwegian guy who's called Eldjarn the Generous, and the newlyweds <laughs> immediately leave Iceland. So, I mean, he's been essentially cuckolded, or, or at least humiliated. I'll go with humiliated. Uh, and he knows Gloom was behind the whole thing. Oh, yes, he does. And and the text makes sure we're aware of the Greek chorus effect of the local rumor. It says everyone knows what happened and everyone's waiting to see what kind of revenge Scoot is able to get on Gloom. Well, I have to say that the daughter, Thorlog, is remarkably compliant. I mean, can you imagine being called yeah. to your father's house and there's a new groom waiting for you? And you just <laughs> right. go ahead with that? <laughs> Well, I mean, if you were married to Killer Scuta and then you met this guy named The Generous. Right, no, fair enough. Fair enough. You're definitely moving up in nicknames. Uh, Plus, you get to move to to Norway, so, you know. Uh, Well, those local gossips you mentioned are going to be left as unsatisfied as we are because Scuta, he just can't figure out a way to get his revenge on Gloom. Hmm. No, I I think we can deal with this pretty quickly if you want. Yeah, I agree. Um, So... Scooter manages to lure Gloom out to a sheepfold by a ruse involving legal support for a relative of Gloom's. Gloom arrives, and Scooter catches him unarmed. Scooter has his axe fly with him, and Gloom knows enough to run away. Scooter yells insults to get him to stop, but Gloom just calls back with a verse. And, since this is the only verse in the entire saga, in fact, we might as well share it. Andy, would you do the honors? Oh, I'm happy to. He says... It's worth a piece of silver, each bush south of the river. The wide woods often cover, outlaw and wolf together. That's a fascinating verse to me. It is, and it rhymes, which is strange. I need to check the translation (laughs) to see if it's Uh uh, legit rhyming. Um, But let's get back to all that in a minute. Finish explaining what happens next, if you will. Well, there's not a lot more to tell. Uh, Gloom is able to circle around to his farm and get a posse of 60 men together to chase Scooter. He's got a lot of men just hanging out on his farm. Now, Scooter has to get away, and he manages to disguise himself as a shepherd and escapes after giving Gloom's men the old he-went-that-away routine. Uh, Again, now, this is all very interesting. Our author, I think he's up to something. Oh, yes, he is, but let me finish. It's not over yet? You got more? (laughs) Not quite. Um, (laughs) Scooter now rides back to his men, and there's a confrontation in which Scooter and Gloom insult one another's cowardice. But eventually, the two parties separate without any violence, and after that we're told, no. Scooter said that it was not fated for him to overcome Gloom, since whatever he devised to harm him failed. And so he gives up on the idea of revenge against Gloom and goes home. Now, there's a lot to talk about here, so let's dig in. Yeah. 
Uh, let's see how many we can get through in about five minutes. Oh, the old five minutes routine. Okay, so I, I want to start with the insults we just talked about. Go right ahead. Well, for starters, both Skuta and Gloom are demonstrating their discretion in this episode. There's a lot of men in the sagas, when faced with tactical disadvantages, who decide to make a heroic last stand. Well, and, and sometimes they even win. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. This is a whole different thing. Both men are perfectly willing to turn and run when the situation doesn't favor them. Yeah, it may they're not, killers, but they're smart killers. Yeah, it may not be the sort of thing that makes a legend, but uh, but both of them live to fight another day. That that I got to be honest, that also helps make a legend since you're still alive <laughs> to do legendary things later. Fair enough. Yeah. Now one could also say that their exchange is kind of a, a fluting. Oh, I suppose it is. So usually a fluting is a ritual exchange of insults, but in this case, it's it's more literary in form. Each man has a chance mm. to insult the other's cowardice and to respond to the accusations against his own behavior. Well, that makes some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but while we're looking at literary motifs, uh, I want to bring up the outlaw stuff. Oh, yes. And that was my next one, too. So go ahead. Um, so what's interesting about this is that this saga, for only this one section suddenly taps into a tradition of outlaw stories that's much more well-known from English sources like Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're getting into the poem now, and uh, it's a weird one because there's no other poems mm-hmm. in this whole saga, but but go ahead and explain what you're talking about with the Robin Hood stuff. Right. Well, as you're saying, there's that half-verse mm-hmm. that Gloom shouts back at Scooter while he flees. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the whole wide woods often cover wolf and outlaw together bit, right? Right. I mean, for starters, as we've mentioned in Outlaw Sagas before... There aren't a lot of woods to hide in in late 10th century Iceland. No. The idea of the Greenwood, this primeval forest where the outlaws live in a kind of protected Edenic paradise, that's an English idea. And it's a bit of a fiction, even in England. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So this verse of Gloom's references a fantasy concept from a non-Icelandic tradition in the midst of a bunch of other outlaw motifs. Okay, so those other motifs are familiar to the Icelandic tradition, though. More so, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so let's take the disguises. Skuta dresses as a wood seller and a shepherd in the space of a few pages. Mm-hmm. Those are both pretty standard outlaw disguises, but it's what he does with them that really sells the outlaw concept. What he does with them? Well, he uses the wood seller disguise to infiltrate his enemy's booths at the thing, which is a fairly common use for disguise in outlaw stories, right? infiltrating your enemy's stronghold. And the shepherd disguise with the, I ran that away gag is a it's a classic trickster move again very outlawy yeah but that's pretty much what all disguises are for i mean they're for sneaking around and not being recognized (laughs) that's true disguise right that's true but these professions uh along with professions like potter baker and clergyman those are commonly the preference of the outlaw well don't forget beggar i mean we saw that uh Mm. that one in the the space of that at the end of greta saga that's right um besides he also jokes to the men questioning him that his name is many in Mivatin, but few in Fiskalak, which involves a, a bad pun based on his name. A scuta actually means cave. Uh, and there are a lot of caves around Mivatin, you see. Uh-huh. And very few around Fiskalak, apparently. Uh-huh. No, I, I do like it. I admit it's not a very good joke. Uh, no, I still like it. It's good. Well, it's the sort of thing that a mythic outlaw does, right? Plays these yeah. little punning jokes on people. You know, interesting, though, I, I thought that you would uh, take an opportunity to bring up Scuta's fancy reversible cloak. Oh, yes. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, so we had a question from Greg on Facebook about descriptions of clothing and what it's made of in the sagas. 
It's a good question, and we'll try to run up a quick saga brief on it uh, once things calm down around here. No, we uh, won't. Why oh, shush. Shush. Uh, you liar. In the meantime, we'll try to occasionally <laughs> highlight clothes that get a lot of attention in the sagas we're reading. Yeah, and this one isn't even all that important to the story, except that it makes it easier for Scooter to pull off his disguises. Mm-hmm. He's got a reversible cloak. It's white on one side and dark on the other. And while that's handy if you're on the run, it's also potentially useful as camouflage, given the amount of snow and ice in Iceland in the colder months. Oh, that's true. I was actually mm-hmm. thinking of being able to suddenly flip to a black or dark blue cloak when you're about to attack someone. Sure, you could do that, and I think he does here. Anyway, the, but the saga doesn't say what the cloak's made of, and it's, but I think it's clearly a high-end material of some mm-hmm. kind. And, and it suggests that Scoot is prepared for potentially needing to disguise or camouflage himself at any time. Um, so... Now, are we done with this section? Uh, no. Uh, there's also the no, problem of Scooter's axe, Fluga. Oh, that's not a problem. Well, it kind of is. Uh, see, the problem is we've already seen him using Fluga, or fly, right? the axe fly, and we will see it again. But in the moment when F- Scooter surprises Gloom at the sheepfold, the author breaks into the narrative rather randomly to say, Scooter had fly in his hand. People do not tell the same story. Some people say it was an axe and was called fly, but some that it was a sword and was called fly. <laughs> Enough already with that <laughs> stuff, you saga author. But <laughs> can it can it maybe be both, like uh, like Schrodinger's hand weapon? Nice. <laughs> it's both an um, axe and a sword. No, uh, because the waveform would collapse as soon as you unsheath the weapon. <laughs> and that's a hard thing to deal with as you're entering combat, waiting to see right. which weapon you've got in your hand this time. Well, I think it'd be more confusing to whoever you're fighting, but, you know, okay. Uh, so, now are we done finally tearing the section apart? I think so. Let's uh, charge on to the last section, shall we? Part 5. Scooter's Trapdoor. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> no. Okay, so we left off with Scooter swearing off further vengeance against Gloom. Well, he admits it's futile, so given his personality, I don't know whether we should read that as meaning he's done trying or... Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but this really does mark a shift in the text. Mm-hmm. From here on out, we're going to see Scooter on the defensive. And the main instigator against him isn't Killer Gloom. And it's not Eolf Gerdesen. No, and it's not Bjarni's father, Thorsten. And it's not Thorgir the Gothi. Well, it's not directly Thorgir anyway. <laughs> you know, now that we're doing this... I'm noticing that Scooter's got a lot of enemies. Well, he's killed a fair number of people. Yeah. Uh, now, the people who are going to come after him now are our old friend Thorberg Cheekstruck and the th- sons of Thorir, the probably not the son of Kettle Flatnose. <laughs> oh, well. So, uh, old Thorberg has been sort of hanging around the edges all along, but didn't Scooter already kill Thorir's son, Thorgir? I thought we were already dealt with yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Thorgir was the guy who Scooter dressed up as a wood seller to sneak up on. But yeah. Thorir apparently had at least two more sons. Oh, Thor de Lugi and Bjorn Thorison. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There are a lot of enemies to choose from. What's kept Scooter alive so far is that for the most part, his enemies don't like each other any more than they like him. Well, you know, there are good reasons for that. I mean, remember, for example, that Thorberg Cheekstruck once framed Gloom for stealing his horse, and Gloom's men killed one of Thorberg's sons, so there's not much chance of them suddenly deciding to team up. I mean, they're... Right, so Skuta can continue to deal with them one at a time, 
and not have to worry about a coalition of his enemies. Exactly. Okay, let's talk about Thorberg first. All right, I'm all ears. You do it. All right, so I'm going to rapid fire through these attempts, but they're worth covering at least briefly because I want to give Thorberg some credit for the variety of his plans. Yeah, he he keeps coming up with new wrinkles to try to keep Skuta off guard. I mean, they don't work, but at least they're original. And I would give the saga right. credit for some of the more, like, thoughtful plots and plans. Right. Like, they're really trying to figure out how to how to mix it up a little bit there. Mm-hmm. So the first one of these, which by my count is at least the fourth attempt Thorberg's made to kill Skuta, is that Skuta's having some home repairs done. <laughs> and Thorberg bribes one of the workmen to let two assassins named Jotgir and Eolf hide in a partitioned space near Skuta's bedroom. Mm-hmm. But as Skuta enters the room, the partition crashes down and the assassins fall out. Uh, Skuta kills the treacherous workman with his own planing tool, and his men come running and kill the assassins before they can untangle themselves. That's pretty straightforward. I mean, there's no no staking his enemies out on an insect-infested island this time? No, not this time. Just a quick kill. Yeah. Skuda's getting soft in his old age. I guess so. So, uh, so the fifth attempt Thorberg makes is to send his own relative, Algisel, to kill Skuta. Algisel comes up with a whole backstory involving being caught stealing from Thorberg. You know, I do like the reaction this gets from Thorberg. It says, Thor, it says, Thorberg said that this seemed extravagant, but that it was likely to work. <laughs> well, it is extravagant. <laughs> it is. But and it works. Know. Skuta's fooled, at least at first, and allows Algisl to join his household. Two weeks later, Algisl tries to sneak up on a sleeping Skuta, but he steps into a trapdoor in Skuta's closet and sets off an Whoa. alarm. <laughs> an alarm? What, what kind of alarm? Well, a string with a bunch of chains attached that make noise when the trapdoor is stepped on. Oh, I love it. That's close enough. It's classic. How does that end for Algizil? Not well. Uh, he does manage to get a stab in while Scoot is untangling himself from the sheets, but it just cuts Scoot's leg. Yeah. And then Scoot is up, and he's armed, and that's the end of Algizil. <laughs> you know, but but a commonality of these two attacks is that Thorberg can't be traced directly to the use of these hired assassins. Mm-hmm. I mean, in both cases, there's a layer of deniability that the evidence can't penetrate. So, it, I... I'll give the Saga author credit. These are kind of well-constructed attempts, and Mm -hmm. Thorgir does get away with it both times. But of course he's going to press his luck. Mm -hmm. And his sixth attempt on Skuta is going to be the biggest yet, because he next decides to ask Thorgir the Gothi for help. Yeah, I wish he wouldn't do that. Why? Because Thorgir is better than this. We know that. Apparently he's not. (laughs) I did not pick him for Thingman so that he could go get caught up in these sordid little plots. I mean, honestly, we know he's a much better person than this saga thinks he is. You keep telling yourself that. I think you know that. Right now, he's the guy who's going to get 200 men together to try and attack Skuta while he's on his way to a local thing. Oh, again with the big numbers. I'd say that's a lot of influence that old Thorgir wields, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, wow. Pretty powerful fella. I'd like to see wow. Finbogi pull that together. Now, <laughs> doesn't doesn't 200 seem like a bit of an overkill here? Well, it would be if they could find Skuta. Uh, but, of course, he the problem with right out of 200... There, what, what's that? I said, but he scooted right out of there, didn't he? Ah, see what you did there? Scooter, scooted, get it? The problem with using 200 men in an assassination is that they're hard to hide. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scooter sees the crowd of horses long before they see him. So he sends his men on while he rides out alone to counter-spy. And when he tracks down three men who are on the lookout for him, he attacks them, 
killing a man named Vesman before riding off without a scratch. You know, we, we haven't really addressed this yet, but this saga mm-hmm. has some serious problems with violent behavior in and around the Thing gatherings. Yeah. And Scooter alone has committed killings at at least three times at local Things. That's true, and it really doesn't seem to be in the service of anything. I mean, normally well, I'd revenge. suspect a saga with a bunch of violent acts of Things to be making a kind of comment about lawlessness or about the decline of civility. Or, or maybe about the recklessness of an individual who acts with contempt for social rules, something sure, like that. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but none of that really seems to be the case here. I mean, this is just a story where a lot of people happen to target one another at things. So the, the question becomes whether this is just a trope for this writer, or is it a, an oral memory of a time when the northern things were having real trouble with keeping order? Or, or is this something else? What do you, what do you think? I'm inclined to have the second choice myself. Uh, it seems like this made its way into the stories told in this area and, you know, kind of became a set piece for local saga tellers. Mm. But <laughs> it's obviously hard to be definitive about it. What about you? Where do you come down on this? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, as much as I'd like to credit the author with a bit of social or political commentary, a little bit of historical stuff there, mm-hmm. I'm just not confident enough in his abilities to pull it off. So I'm just <laughs> going to say he, he likes having a bit of fun at the thing assemblies. Wow, golly. Yeah. Um, so once your man Thorgir gets word of Vestman's death, Ugh. he makes a settlement for the killing. And no, and this actually works out. He vows never again to take part in a plot against Skuta. There's that wisdom. So, you know, it, it's all sorted out now. He eventually learns half a dozen <laughs> plots in. <laughs> ah, he's only a part of a couple of them. But, uh, you know, we're not done. You know, we mentioned that the sons of Thor Flatnose's fake son at the beginning of this section... And they still want a piece of Skuta. Of course. So Thorir's sons, Thord Ilugi and Bjorn, seek help to plan an attack on Skuta. Since many of Skuta's enemies have given up on ever killing him, they seek out their dead brother's friend, Thorod the Gothi. Now, this is the same Thorod who helped hatch the master plan about using Skuta's thing booth as a latrine for the summer. That's the witty guy. Now, Thorod hears them out, but as the saga tells us, Thorod thought he saw at once what they were, and that Thord and Lugi, in particular, was not likely to take vengeance. Ouch. Yeah, that is not a compliment. No, so it's Thorod, not. Thorod's going to hatch a plan, and he tells the Thorsons to return in six months, which is a long time. Then he sends his cousin, Thorgrim Otterson, to Scooter's house under the guise of having fallen out with his family, and also to seduce Scooter's foster daughter, Sigrid. <laughs> now... And this is a little bit of an unusual situation, but Skuta does indeed have a foster daughter at his farm. She's the only person, aside from Skuta, who knows the secret of the trapdoor in Skuta's bed closet. That's right, and this is the same trapdoor that Outgizel stepped on when he was trying to kill Skuta. This trapdoor, which I think is fascinating, leads to a secret passage out to a sheep barn nearby. Mm-hmm. And this is, it, the whole thing's booby-trapped, but, but it's mainly meant as an escape hatch for Skuta in, emer- in an emergency. And no one but he and Sigrid know where the other end of the tunnel is. The question is, why would he tell anyone else? I mean, presumably so that she could use it to escape as well. You know, if someone tried to burn down the the house while they're still in it, you know, you want to get out. Fair enough, fair enough. And and so Thorgrim spends a winter at Skuta's house where he and Sigrid conveniently fall in love. As part of a dastardly scheme to expose Skuta's weaknesses? No, I, I think they actually seem to like each other. But it's kind of irrelevant. Or at least Thorgrim seems to like her. Mm-hmm. And he also likes Skuta, who's treating him quite well. Huh. But he's also still reporting back to Thorod as ordered. So it's kind yeah, of... Yeah, this is actually... 
a great bit of narrative tension. And, you know, there aren't a lot of them in this saga, so we have to give credit where yeah. it's due. Uh, it feels like some of the strongest pieces of characterization the saga writers managed. There's a yeah. real sense that Thorgrim is kind of caught between his cousin, who's both family and a friend, and the home he's found with Skuta and the lovely Sigrid. And Thorod realizes that Thorgrim might be compromised. He might not be reliable anymore. And he's starting to plan another way to learn Skuta's secrets. This seems like something that's going to pay off really nicely. It does, doesn't it? And? And? Nothing. Uh, there, There's a missing piece of the manuscript at this point, which is kind of frustrating. Ah! Yeah. A little bit of a lacuna, as we like to say. <laughs> but as we say in the scholarly world with manuscripts, lacuna matata. <laughs> uh, I don't say that. No. Andy says that. I've never said that. that. Just just now I said that. You just did. <laughs> and it picks up. <laughs> I, I don't think I can leave that in there. That's really not good. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. There's a missing piece of the manuscript at this point, and, and it picks up again with the Thorisons and Cheekstruck's son, Olvir, using the tunnel to sneak into Scooter's house. Ooh. This is just infuriating. Mm-hmm. We finally got someone facing a moral dilemma in this saga. The story is reaching its climax, and the text is just missing. I know. Yeah, we've had one or two missing chunks of other sagas we've read, but they've always been either filled in from other sources or unimportant enough that we haven't really addressed them. But this is the first time we really miss out on something that feels like we've been cheated, and the writing in this part is actually good. Yes! It really does feel that way. Like, we have been cheated. I've read this at least four times now, and I'm still angry every time I get to this point. Yeah. So, sorry about that, everyone. We just don't know how it all kind of comes together. Yeah. No, and it only gets worse when we pick up the narrative again. It's true. The Thorsons clearly know all about the tunnel, and not only do they know how to get into it from the barn end, but they also know how to cut the rope so that the noisy traps won't give them away. So, the brothers got the information from Thorgrim somehow... But we don't exactly know how. Yes, it looks that way. Since they sneak in quietly, it's only when the Thorsons actually burst into the bed closet that Skuta wakes up. And as Skuta jumps out of bed, Thord Ilugi runs him through with a spear. Skuta swings his axe one last time and it misses Thord, but embeds itself in Bjorn's head. And as he dies, Skuta says, Not everyone has been discreet. Those are weird last words. Normally, I like a bit of enigmatic understatement as much as the next saga reader, but that's a terrible moment for it. I mean, does he mean that Sigrid was indiscreet? Does it mean that Thorgrim learned of the tunnel some other way and then betrayed him? And how did the Thorisons get the information when Thorgrim was reluctant to betray Sigrid? I'm guessing Thorgrim had to give it up, but, you know, there there are a lot of questions here and not a lot of answers. And mm-hmm. and later, Thorgrim returns to the farm and asks Sigrid to marry him. And even though she's furious with him for what she thinks is his betrayal of Skuta, and I think that kind of gives away who, who revealed mm-hmm. things, she mm-hmm. does eventually agree to marry him. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Um, and that still doesn't tell us what actually happened, just what she thinks happened. Mm-hmm. And it still leaves open the possibility that she told Thorgrim about the trapdoor in the first place. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. The saga author gives us a, a really short eulogy for Skuta and says of him, It seemed to many men the killing hadn't happened any sooner than was to be expected in Skuta's case. But nevertheless, it is entirely true to say of him that he was a wise man and a great hero. But not everyone thought him to be a reasonable man. Yet yeah, that's hardly the unalloyed praise heaped on his saintly father, Askel. 
No, but but then Scooter was a much more entertaining guy than Askel as well, and kind of more yeah, capable. That ending he does get just things done. Me. Yeah. Well, you know, if anyone has an idea of how to stitch this story back together, just let us know. You can send us your best answers to the problem of how the Thorsons found out about the trap door or anything else you'd like to talk about. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page where we're Saga Thing Podcast or on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. And you can also visit our WordPress blog page and leave a message there, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can leave a note under the trap door in Andy's bed closet. And that is going to do it for us. So until I see you in my bed closet, we'll be back in a couple of weeks to pass judgment on this saga. And I think that we're both going to have a few things to get off our chest. Oh, yes. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Let's not be hasty. (laughs) 